Hey, leader, and welcome to another episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast, where we are obsessed with helping you grow to your maximum potential and to maximize the impact of your leadership. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Baritone Advisors. We're also recording this episode live from the Return.com studio. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you'll enjoy our content and become a subscriber. Know that you can also watch all of our episodes over on our YouTube channel, so make sure you're subscribed there as well. And as always, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it would really mean the world to me if you would leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever app you listen to podcasts through. That really does help us to grow our audience and reach more leaders. So thank you in advance for that. Well, leader, in today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jamie Winship. If you're unfamiliar with Jamie, let me just tell you a little bit about him. Jamie has had decades of experience bringing peaceful solutions to some of the world's highest conflict areas. Starting with a distinguished career in law enforcement, his unconventional efforts to bring about societal and racial reconciliation led him to Indonesia, Jordan, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, and then back to the U.S. He's worked with leaders in a variety of sectors, from police departments to pro football teams to faith-based organizations. He's also the author of the book Living Fearless, Exchanging the Lies of the World for the Liberating Truth of God. And in our conversation, you're going to hear Jamie share a wild story of how he solved a crime, and I won't give away um, how he did that, but you're going to love that. You're going to hear him share why living out of our true identity enables us to live a fearless life and so much more. I think you're going to fall in love with Jamie and his content, and so I hope you'll connect with him. But before we dive into the conversation, just a few announcements. This episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Baritung Advisors. The financial advisors at Baritung Advisors help educate and empower clients to make informed financial decisions. You can find out how Baritung Advisors can help you develop a customized financial plan for your financial future by visiting their website at baritungadvisors.com. That's B-E-R-A-T-U-N-G advisors.com. Securities and investment products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC, Baritung Advisors, LPL Financial, and L3 Leadership are separate entities. I also want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They're a jeweler by my friend and mentor, John Henny. And my wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers and had an incredible experience. And not only do they have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. In fact, for every couple that comes in engaged, they give them a book to help them prepare for marriage. And we just love that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. And I also want to thank our new sponsor, Return.com. And Leader, let me just ask you this. Have you ever had an interest in investing in real estate? Well, now for as little as $500, you can become a commercial real estate investor. Just visit Return.com to learn more. That's R-E-I-T-U-R-N.com. Investing involves risk. Please consult the Return Offering Circular if you're interested in investing. And with all that being said, let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Jamie Winship. Well, Jamie Winship, welcome to the L3 Leadership Podcast. Really looking forward to this conversation together. And I really wanted to start with, you know, you just sharing a brief overview of your life. Uh, you're a police officer. You worked for the CIA. You now have a company that helps people with identity. Uh, tell us about that. How did you get to where you are today? Wow. So, um, yeah, well, when I was 14, I, I, I went to a movie, actually, and that's uh, uh, snuck into a movie because we weren't allowed to go to movies in my family. And so I snuck into a movie and the movie was about a New York City police officer, which I had no idea what the movie was about. I just sat in the back. And as the movie played, I ju- it just really affected me deeply emotionally. And I, I identified with the character in the story. 
we call that naming in literature, the, the, the piece of art names the reader or the viewer or the song. Anyway, so um, I just knew I, I felt like that's who I wanted to be. And um, actually what went forward at the movie theater, because that's what you do when you're independent Baptist and um, <laughs> just kind of committed my life to being a police officer, which was which wow. which was really a metaphor. And that's important for young people to know that what they see is not necessarily literally the thing, but it represents something to them that you explore the rest of your life. But but I knew I wanted to be a police officer and whatever that represented. So that's what I committed myself to being um, when, uh, yeah. And then so through high school into university, criminal justice, political science, graduated, met my wife, uh, I actually qualified at the range my last day in the academy, jumped in a car, drove to um, Richmond, Virginia, and got married. Um, <laughs> went away for two days, came back and started midnight shift. So from eighth grade to age 23, that had been my dream. So went on the midnight shift in 1983. Um, got into the police department. I loved it. I, I absolutely loved the job. Um, and... Um, had a lot of questions as I was involved in it, like, could we do this better? And, you know, so I started interacting with people and just issues with guys on my own squad and all of that. Just on a spiritual level, I thought, like, I don't feel like we're making a lot of gains, actually, in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So I started I started really investigating other ways. What, what are other ways to think about um, police, policing, law enforcement, all of that criminal justice system? And I started experimenting with ideas that I would have while I was working a case or in a house or dealing with a person. And as I did, um, I, I, I started to map out just kind of another way to think about things, more a way of knowing things than actually the vocation. And as I did, I did that over five years and I was officer of the year and I made detective and um, developed a pretty good reputation in the police department. And then in then in 1987, um, I got contacted by a judge who introduced me to the uh, operate the operations guy for the CIA. They wanted to interview me. I went into the interview um, on a Tuesday night, I think it was, uh, at a bar. Interestingly enough, that's where they, we did the interview, which is interesting. And through that through that whole interview, which was quite an intensive, really well thought out interview process, which I noticed as soon as they started talking, the way they sat, I was like, wow, this is an interview. And these guys are really good at interviewing. And so we went through this whole process of how are you thinking about what you're thinking about? And then they gave me a scenario. They were working in the world and said, what would you do in this scenario? And I told them I would do this. This would be my strategy. And they offered me a job right on the spot. Wow. So uh, I went home that night and the next day, you know, my whole life went in a whole, not a different direction, just the same direction, just at a much more intense level and international. Mm -hmm. So um, so we left the U.S. Um, actually, I went and got a graduate degree as part of that strategy and then left the U.S. in 1990 and lived outside the U.S. for 20, 20, almost 27 years came back in the U.S. in 2016 and started working in this company that we now have. 
Well, that's uh, that's quite a journey. A lot yeah. I want to unpack there and get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I, I want to hear you. I heard the story that you shared that I thought was amazing. Um, you know, you've mentioned in the past that one of the reasons the CIA was interested in you is just because of the way you were doing things as a police officer. And I specifically heard a story about, uh, I believe someone kidnapped a child and you had a really, can you share that story? Because yeah. it blew me away. And that really kind of sounds like put you on the on everyone's map at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so because, um, because, you know, I'm a person of faith and I believe a lot in prayer and which, which to me is a prayer is a big and interesting topic and we, it's too minimized. It's too, it's, hmm. it's too, it's too formulaic and treated as this little shout out for help. But it's actually a very deep intuitive process that all humans can do and access. Um, if they will. And it's like a muscle that you exercise. So I was in my second or third year uniform. And I was already, I was already, as I said earlier, I was always saying, asking the question, is there another way to think about what I'm getting ready to do? So I was trained in the police academy to think a certain way, to work a certain way. And it was great, but it was limited, which it, which it, it can only be limited. They can't teach every scenario and all that. And so my question was, um, is there, could I access another level of knowing things, um, while I'm in process of something? Is there another, is there another way of knowing and understanding? It's a kind of epistemology. And so I was already, I was carrying a notebook around with me and I'd be in a case or working something and I would know my training and I would go to the edge of my training. I would say, wow, if there was something just beyond this, would probably be better than what I trained in. Or if you're in the military and you know you train all the time and you get in the situation that has nothing to do with what you trained for just all of a sudden and you got to shift mm-hmm. paradigms and all that kind of thing. So so a, high, a highly resilient individual, one of their characteristics of a highly re- re- resilient individual is their ability to shift paradigms on the spot, which for most people is nearly impossible because it's too frightening <laughs> to do. Mm-hmm. So I was experimenting on this sort of low level and I was, and so for me, that's prayer. That's the contemplative life. It's the intuitive mind. And so I can just go in the reptilian memory based system, or I can keep ascending to the prefrontal cortex and asking God in my case, what's another way to think about this? So we have this kidnapping case. This is in the eighties, no computers, um, you know, we, the school notifies us this, this kid never showed up. We're two hours into the game. It's, you know, it's pretty hopeless. There's no real witnesses. It's not a domestic case. It's just a rare abduction, which back in those days was rare. And so, um, you know, we're working the case and I go and I meet with the parents, me and my partner and um, the father, obviously super upset at the time I had two little boys my wife and I, and it, I was emotionally affected by it too. And I said to the father, I, I promise you will find this kid, which is, you know, you don't do, you never do that. No, that's very unprofessional to make a statement like that, hmm. to give expectation to a parent like that. And so when I walked away, my partner was, who was senior to me, he was really upset. He's like, why do you, why did you say that to him? You never say that kind of thing to a parent. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I just came out of me. So I go and I get in my cruiser. He goes, my partner leaves and and went to work another part of it. And I get in the cruiser and I drive a short distance away. And it's fairly hopeless, you know, statistically at this point. So I just I'm sitting on the side of the street and I just say to God, 
in this kind of exercise, it's like, God, it, it, you, you know where this kid is. Like you, I mean, like, don't you? And if you do, could you communicate to me where he is? And if you were going to communicate to that to me, what would be the process where I would know? How would I know that? Like those are just a series. And I was just asking questions and I was just sitting there and I, and I, you know, I was thinking about justice and God, you're a God of justice and this kind of thing. So, and this is the interesting thing for the creative process, which is a whole nother discussion, but the, the beginning of every creative process and every human being in the world, Einstein, Kepler, all of them, Mozart, is you have to ask a question. Hmm. You go through life never asking a question. You never create or innovate. And But then when you ask the question, you have to wait for an answer. Like you have to like become super aware and search for the answer. So these are things humans don't do because we're, for whatever reason. So I asked the question. And then, um, and then I just became super attentive to like, how would I know? And I'm looking around and this car comes down the street behind me from behind me, going the speed limit, goes past me. And when it goes past me, I feel really nauseous, like someone punched me in the stomach. Hmm. And so then, so then you just start putting the pieces together. Like, okay, I asked this question. I'm looking around. What happens after I ask the question? What events? Who did I meet? This kind of thing. Okay, it's this car. I feel incredibly sick. This is a this is a sensation I have come to really cherish. This sensation. Mm. Um, lots of guys I work with have different ways they feel things or sense things, but they're good. You know, they it's like trust your gut kind of thing, which every old cop used to say, trust your gut. So I anyway, I pull the car over. I cut. I pull in front of him. Actually, and force him to the side of the road. And I get out and there's just the driver in the car. No one's in the car. And I just say, get out, get out and open the trunk. And he gets out and opens the trunk. And the kid is in the trunk of the car. Wow. And so, you know, all three of us, me, the guy, the driver and the kid were astounded at what happened. We all just kind of stood there in shock. The kid was okay. Um, and but like for me, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's more ways of knowing things than what we think. Like that was more the thought. This is not a guarantee. You know, this is not like magic or a formula or all that, but it is God showing me there are ways of knowing things um, that you don't know, but you can know like they're knowable. And so, you know, I called the detective. They came and, you know, the, the guy confessed and all that. And, the, and then the detective said to me, what was your probable cause for pulling this car over? Because you got to be able to testify in court why you pulled them over. And I said, well, I was praying. And he said, no, 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 <laughs> no. So, and this is the other thing about the creative process. If you work through this intuitive creative process and you don't have a way of explaining it or demonstrating it to a world that doesn't believe in that process, then it's mm. of no value, right? Mm. If it's just in my head or, or, in, but I can't go into a courtroom and explain to a jury my process that makes sense to another human being, it's of no value. And unfortunately, this is what happens with prayer and ideas. There, It gets to be this, like, God told me, or I had this thought, and like, well, practically, let's work it out. And you can't, then, um, yeah, that's 
it's actually it's actually not the creative process. So like if Einstein can't write down the theory of relativity in a paper that other mathematicians can read and go, wow, it's crazy, but he's actually right. Or Mozart can't take the symphony that he can hear in his head and write every note for the clarinets, which Mozart called tedious, then we can't hear what he hears. And so that's important for a believer. It's got to go from up here down through and out and Habakkuk the prophet says that you have to write it down so men can read it and run with it they have to be able to use what happened so yeah so I was officer of the year for that and um and that got that got me going right that got me like wow what can we do then what's possible yeah a few things I want to untap just because you just mentioned it Mm -hmm. you talked about Hey, saying you heard from God or you prayed wouldn't flow. How have you, because you can't communicate like that in that, that role, how have you as a believer learned to communicate practically? Uh, Cause I think a lot of people struggle with that. Well, I talk about, well, I mean, I just did this the other night with a group. It's interesting. So I just talk about the, the human mind. It's like incredible. And there, uh, I read a great book a long time ago called the biology of transcendence written by an educator It's talking about the biology of a human being is to ascend and transcend. That's how humans are made. The fact that we don't do it is is abnormal, that we live these sort of rational, imitative, um, compulsive repetition lives is counter to being human. So when I'm talking about like when I would have to train a rookie police officer in how I was doing what I was doing, I had to be able to explain it to him. And so I talk about the intuitive mind. I say a thought begins down here. Hmm. It's a thought about relationship to a situation. It's always humans are always their most basic instinct is attachment. So whatever scenario you're in, you're going to try and attach to it in some way. Then the assessment center is the amygdala. And that's the library of your brain going, you know, we've experienced something like this before. And either we're going to go ahead or we're not going to go ahead. And most of the time it's we're not going to go ahead. It's fear based. But if that thought can get past that into the singular cortex, which is the attunement level, it's like, okay, we're going to do this. Okay, I'm going to stop this car. Okay, so when I do it, what am I going to do? That's the attunement level all the way up into the prefrontal cortex, which is the administrator. It's where you dream and have vision. It's the only part of them. And it only can think in symbol and picture that part of the brain. It's our highest level of thinking. When it gets up there, like then you imagine the scenario And then it goes over to the left brain to do it. That's the administrator. And so that's Mm -hmm. the process going on in every human brain. The problem is most of us shut it down in the assessment center every sixth of a second like that. And so when I'm telling a jury I had an idea and the idea was up here, what if, what if, what if this kid's in a car Right. What would I be looking for? I'd be looking for a lone driver. You know, that's and then this is my process. And then how would I why would I stop that car? Because it was in this neighborhood and this incident. And this was what this is what I felt like. And my probable cause was this is a good possibility of of a car just to check like wow. that. But it's all the the way the brain works so that we I so I didn't call it prayer in court, although. D- different people that came in because they would confess to crime because me and my partner would pray over them in the interview hmm. and they would come in and use the, you know, the officer, the officer prayed with me before he questioned me. <laughs> well, 
that, you know, they brought those kind of terms in. But for me, it's like, look, you have an intuitive mind that goes way out like this. And so let's use it. And, and in contemplation, one other thing about, I said this in a public school the other day to a bunch of administrators, I said, innovation has to be preceded by contemplation. All innovation is preceded by contemplation. So if you want your students to be innovative, don't teach them innovation. It won't work. Teach them contemplation, which leads to innovation. And then I asked the principals, how many of you know how to contemplate or have a practice of contemplation, which puts you in the intuitive mind all the time? They didn't know. So I said, would you like it if I would teach a course on contemplation? They all signed up. Public school. Wow. I'm in too. Send me the link. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so speaking of that, so man, that was so good. You talked about hearing from God too, and, and you said early on in our, our conversation, just you know, a lot of times people think about praying and, and contemplating, and they just kind of throw a prayer up and hope that it works. Um, you know, it's one thing to think through thoughts like, "How do you?" I have a lot of leaders ask me because I'll say, like, I feel like God dealt with me on something, and they'll say, "Well, like, how do you actually know you heard from God? How do you know you just didn't eat pickles last night before you know right. uh, you went to bed, etc." Right. So, yeah, and that's a great question. And that's an important question because then, you know, in some spheres, the idea of hearing from God gets really abused. Right. It's just awful. Um, and so, again, so hearing from God. So there's two two parts in hearing from God. Number one is to know your own identity. Um, that's really critical because how God is going to communicate this. I mean, this is all scriptural, like. You can just do case studies starting with Adam and go all the way through the scriptures and watch this over and over again with human beings. Before they understand who they are, they're doing things based on how they're seeing the world around them. And it's not working (laughs) like that's the beginning of the scenario. Even like Moses, like even Moses, who has a sense of his identity as Hebrew and it says he d- doesn't forget it, even though he's in the palace of Pharaoh. He has this sense of like he has some I have some role of delivering Israel out of bondage. He's got that in his head. He's being trained by the best superpower in the world. But when he comes into the scenario of a Egyptian oppressing a Hebrew, his strategy is to kill the Egyptian, which is co- the w- most counterproductive thing he could have done. But in his mind, it's like I'm I'm liberating this guy. But that's that's a low level fear based reactionary. So then but in when he interacts with God, God speaks it to into him the truth of who he is. That's so important. And so once you understand your identity, your God in 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 the faith world can only speak to the true you. Right. So and the true me. I know my identity and I, being informs doing. So when I pray and ask God a question or direction in something, I know my identity and I know how that identity is going to probably go. I know it, right? So it's like if I'm a catcher on a baseball team and I'm asking the coach, what do you want me to do? He's not going to say pitch, right? He's going to teach me all kinds of skill about catching. Like, so when I ask God a question about what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? I know the range of how he's going to speak to me. I know. Mm. So like when, when Moses goes to the burning bush and has that intuitive high level encounter with God in the symbol and the metaphor of the burning bush, basically God says to him, I didn't create you to be a shepherd. I'm not here to give you shepherding advice. 
I'm here to talk to the deliverer of nations. That's who I came to talk to. And everything I say to you will be related to that identity. So it just narrows the scope of, of the range of what you're going to hear. And when you hear from God in your identity, it won't violate scripture. It won't go outside of scripture. It will energize you. It will, it, it will fill you with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, fifth, and it will make sense to you. I always ask people when they say, I heard God say, I said, does that make any sense to you? Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense that God would say that to you? Like if God came to me and said, join the NBA, I would be like, that's probably not him. Right? It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. And it it should make sense to you. And if it doesn't make sense, you need to keep asking questions. But it's so simple. It's so nice and simple. And the more complicated we make it, it's because we're afraid. But that's it. Know your identity and asking God questions. And then one other passage I love in John Jesus says, the father knows what you need before you ask him. The father knows what you need before you ask him. So mm-hmm. a great prayer is, God, right now, what do I need? Wow. And then when he tells you what you need, ask him for that. And I guarantee you he'll do it. But we're just shotgunning stuff up there. And then we have ideas that come like, was that God? Was that not God? It's like you're out of line. Get in line with who you are. Understand that all that all deep. Doing is informed by being first. Get your identity square with God. Understand it. And then start asking questions from the truth of who you are. And then it's pretty clear what happens. Yeah. So, so the foundation is identity and you are giving your life literally to the organization, the identity exchange, and you're helping people with their identity. Uh, I, I just want to transition into that subject. You know, I'll just leave this really, really open ended. Why, why is identity so important to you that you've decided to give your life to this? And why do people need to focus on, on their identity? Okay. Well, for two reasons. Number one, well, I get number one, the term identity has been totally hijacked. So in, in, in life, you know, words are the way we have of connecting and communicating. And if you, if you, from a scriptural standpoint, there's a really a battle for words all through scripture. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus's title is the word. He's the word. So if you want to understand the definition of a word, you need to look to Christ. That he's, Christ is the definer of words. So if I'm going to understand identity or, or anything, it's it's like it's so fascinating to subject that to the idea of Christ. So that's one. I hear identity misused all the time. And what people are saying, my identity is this, is not identity. That They're not talking about identity. What they're talking about is names of organizations and teams and gangs and roles. That's what they're talking about. Or who they sleep with. That's that's those are not identities. But the whole, all of us are arguing about them as if they are identity. So identity, true identity, is received in community from God. That's my definition. That's, hmm. that's the scriptural definition of identity. It's received. It's not self-generated. That's called radical individualism. Radical individualism is the counterfeit to true identity. Radical individualism is self-generated and it's subjective and it produces immediate conflict. True identity is received in community and the identity connects with community. It knows its place in the community, so it's balanced and it's not in competition. 
It's received in community and it's from God. So it's the essence of who you are, deeply rooted in love, apart from what you do. It's not connected to what you do. It's who you are. We get our identity from what we do, what we have, and what people think about us, right? Hmm. So, so identity is the only thing that a living system can organize around. This is just a rule of science. All living systems organize around identity. There's no other organizing principle in the universe. So if the identity is true, the, then the system, the living system, whatever it is from a from a amoeba to a tree to a human, if the identity is true, that living organism is, is an open system. It's adaptable. It's flexible. It's always connected. It's reciprocal relationship to everything around it. And it, it knows what to produce. It will produce from what it is, right? Jesus talks about this, you know, a good tree produces good fruit. So, so if the living system organizes around an identity that's corrupted, like a cell, it becomes cancer, which is a false identity of a cell, and it becomes a closed system, and it starts to destroy everything around it. So when you look at a whole country that gets their identity from God in community and reciprocal, it's not at war all the time. It won't be. Or a neighborhood or a community. But if it has a false identity and it's living in a worldview of scarcity, it will take from everything around it. It won't give. And the, the identity will be based in self-promotion and self-protection, and it turns inward and closes down, right? So identity, since it's the, it's the organizing principle of all living organisms, it's got to be the starting point of every conversation. Every conversation has to start with identity of a person, of a company, of a town, of a nation has to be identity. So you work with people all over the world. You've worked, you've been in this work for a long time. How many people, if you had to put a percentage to it, do you feel like are actually living out their true identity versus false identities? 10%, 10%, maybe, maybe. Just you can, the way you know is just by look at the level of conflict. Just look at the level of conflict. Even when I'm in a conversation with one person, I just look at the level of conflict going on just inside of them. The true identity, the true identity, and Jesus is the model of the true identity of the human and the true identity. He never has internal conflict. There's no internal conflict. He's dealing with all kinds of external conflict, but he never experiences internal conflict. He's sad for things. Sad is a form of love. Um, he's, he's, he, he longs for things. He laments for things, but he's not in an internal conflict. Jesus is never in a win-lose scenario. Never. We, we are, everything we do to us is a win-lose scenario. As soon as I think I'm in a win-lose scenario, I have to self-protect and self-promote and I move into the false. So, so that 90% that are not living out their true identity, wh- where did their identities come from? How is it shaped? Because I feel like so many, I mean, as you said, 90% of the people on the planet, and that's your estimation, struggle with this, struggle with identity. Why is that and where did that come from? Be, okay, so I, and I'm probably being generous by saying 90. It's probably more. <laughs> 
But okay, so and this, this is actually what my next book is about. So hmm. we worked on identity for many, many years, and we did it. We started it as a counterterrorism strategy. Like, can we do counterterrorism without use of force or um, coercion? Is there a way to walk a person out of a terrorist conflict mindset without shooting them or imprisoning them or bribing them? Which none of which works. None of which hmm. stops anything. And so we went after. It has to be their sense of identity. They're getting their sense of identity from what they do, what they have, and what people think about them. That's what they're doing. So if you ask a kid, okay, you're 12 and you're already part of the Bloods and the Crips, why? Because they give me identity. That's why. They give me a sense of identity, belonging, safety, security. They give me a sense of value. Until they until they take it from you. But that's how they lure you into it. So we worked on identity. It worked really well. It, it was hard to figure out. It took us a lot of time. It was super costly for those of us that were experimenting in this. And it started to work really well. We started to see the results. But the longer we went, the more the, it was like, okay, that, that group understands their identity. They've moved out of violence. That's great. But they drift into another kind of conflict. It's just interesting. So we we I, so you go back to God and you're like, what are we not thinking about? What are we not thinking about? So here's where we are, Lord. And this is the contemplative exercise. Here's where we are. Here's what we have done. What do we not know? What do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do? And the thing that really struck us was worldview. Worldview. Okay, so worldview is not biblical. People say, I have a biblical worldview. That's not a worldview. That's that's your view of the Bible, and there's a hundred views of the Bible. Worldview is the lens through which you see everything that you see, and you can't see the lens, so you don't know what it is, but it's a worldview, and how I look at the Bible is through my worldview. So we started really digging into worldview. Okay, what is worldview? How did the scriptures talk about worldview? How does anthropology talk about worldview? How does economics talk about worldview? Because if it's true, it's all of those are going to go together. And our conclusion was there's only ever been two worldviews, ever, ever in any, it, it doesn't matter in what civilization you're starting in, what religion, there's only two worldviews. I just did a thing on this at Harvard just to prove my point with, with the, with the, um, fellows program in the in the Kennedy School of Diplomacy. And I just said, I'm going to put this forward and you tell me where I'm wrong. There's only ever been two worldviews. So one worldview is the separation worldview and the other worldview is the connection worldview. Those are the only two. If you come from a, a, a Abrahamic faith, you'll see those two worldviews explained in Genesis 1 and 3, right? So, yeah. in, so just briefly, so Moses is explaining Genesis to the Israelites. Like this is what Christians forget. It's not the beginning of the Bible. It's Moses telling a people group whose whole identity is slave. That's their entire identity for 400 years, slave. And listen, their identity comes from what they can produce. Hmm. Their identity comes from what they, they have no identity apart from what the marketplace tells them is valuable. If you can produce bricks, then you have a kind of value. And when you can't produce bricks, you have no value. Our kids learn very early in life, your only value is what you can produce. That's your only value. And they start getting measured in production in kindergarten because they're in the separation worldview because we hold to it all the time. 
And separation worldview believes, number one, in scarcity. Scarcity, two words, not enough. It's a worldview where there's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough nice people. There's not enough Christians. There's not enough of my team. There's not enough jobs. There's not enough food. There's not enough of everything. So when we're working with people, the very first thing I get them to do is I want you to write down every time in the day, those two words, not enough, come through your brain because you're living in it and you totally agree with it. And you can't live in that world without ultimately thinking you're not enough. You can't. So if I'm not enough, what does that mean about what I got to do in life? I have to self-protect and self-promote. Why? Because there's not enough jobs and there's not enough opportunity and there's not enough money. So my whole life becomes the pursuit of my own good. So scarcity leads to a search for certainty, which leads to a search for for perfection, which leads to self-interest. It can only lead to self-interest. The way we know in the U.S. that we're dying in scarcity is when you have a crisis come. The crisis comes, COVID comes, no one knows what it is. A, a, a culture that's healthy, that understands identity, when they hit a crisis, they band together. They go, we don't know what this is. Let's figure it out together. Let's protect each other. We need all the identities together. A scarcity culture goes as fast as it can to the store and buys everything that it thinks it needs to the detriment of everyone around them. Wow. And we and Christians led the way in the scarcity mentality. And mm-hmm. then the scarcity world goes to war against anyone that questions their viewpoint on it. Because because in scarcity, you search for certainty. And when you're looking for certainty, then you have anything that shakes what you're certain about is your enemy. And and so it's not like, did you get a vaccine? Did you not? You're a, like, we're, 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 we hate you because you did this and this. And and it's like, how fast did we move into those warring conflict camps immediately? Immediately. And we couldn't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian neighborhood. Couldn't tell the difference. They all did the same thing, right? That's a scarcity worldview. That's what we live in. And in the scarcity worldview, the measurable becomes more important to the human than the immeasurable. That means love, joy, peace, pay. We don't care about that stuff. What we want is ROI. How many people did you lead to Christ? How long was your quiet time? How, uh, what are you producing for God? Because the marketplace is what gives us identity. That's what gives us identity. And if you can't produce something that makes money, you don't have any value, right? That's that. That's the separation worldview. How much of the world is in that? What percentage of the world is in that? All of it. All of it. <laughs> All of it. Right? I was just going to say, yeah. So Moses is warning Israelites coming out of Egypt. This is the worldview you've been raised in. We're going to be a different worldview. We're going to be a different kind of nation. We're going to be an influencer. We're going to be a light on a hill. And then to do that, we have to stay in the connected worldview. It's not about scarcity. It's about enough. What's the example? Manna. There's the example. Manna. How much should we gather of the manna? Enough for today. Well, we, what about for tomorrow? It'll rot on you if you collect more than you need. It, it, the whole sto- the whole journey of Israel is to walk them out of the separation empire worldview into the connection kingdom worldview. It's astounding. The Bible is astounding how it presents this. And so Mosaic governance is presenting a whole nother way of governance. Debt canceled every seven years. We're not building an empire here. We don't want an empire. Empires of the enemy. We want kingdom. 
And, and Israel's job was to never become an empire. And when Solomon took them to become an empire, they completely fell apart and went into exile, right? And so all of us are living in either a separation or a connection worldview every day. Most of us breathe in separation. We can't even tell. And so when I go and say, look, there's another worldview. This is what I did at Harvard. I said, we're in the separation worldview. Do you agree? I mean, there were underclassmen, there were postdocs in the room. They're like, yeah, we all agree. We never thought about it, but yep, we all, and at Harvard, oh my gosh, you talk about separation worldview. You talk about empire builders, like their whole career is like, we got to Harvard. Does that give you identity? Does that give you identity? Yes, it does. It doesn't, but man, does it. And so if I didn't go to Harvard, see, I'm down here. I didn't go to Harvard in the measurement world like that. So that's why we don't understand identity because even when I go into the church, it's production. It's production. It's how, how famous is the pastor? All, all of this empire nonsense. So you have Jesus and Caesar all the time, connection, connection versus separation, empire versus kingdom, right? So it's hard to maintain a true identity in a separation worldview. Well, you're never going to be out of work <laughs> with a lot of work you've gone into. So let's, let's get practical and just, you know, this is a leadership podcast and clearly leaders deal with this all the time. Uh, as you were just mentioning, you help people exchange their identities. How can we move and even help those we lead move from a separation identity to a connected connection identity? So first is just to help people see that you have a worldview and it's dominating the way you live and think. Like we're just not paying attention to it, right? So one is just the awareness of it. So when I write this, I, we, I teach a business ethics class at the university here. And when I'm teaching um, on economics and I'm talking about, okay, this is the worldview that every one of you guys are going to are in right now. And it's how you're understanding business. You're understanding business in a separation worldview. If you're being taught business in a separation worldview and you're going to embrace it as a separation worldview and you're going to go out there and do it. So let's just pay attention what it is. And I list it. It, it, it. It's shocking to them. It's shocking to them. Like, yeah, that is exactly what I think. Why do I think that? So one is just making them aware of it. The second thing, and this is what, what the question I asked at Harvard is, okay, we agree that the separation worldview is not good. It's not healthy. The connection worldview is a better option. Will you move from separation to connection? And they all said no. Really? Yeah. Do you know why? Wow. Do you know why not? Why they won't? They don't want to let go. Right. They're afraid. Yeah. What are they afraid of? That the scarcity worldview will kill us. So then they asked me, and this is what's hard for the marketplace, because, because business leaders, some business leaders, we want to live and lead like Jesus. I'm like, really? Is that really what you want? You <laughs> I mean, that sounds so sweet. And that's such an empty cliche. So, so at Harvard, they asked me, who, who do you know that leads like this? Who, because in our world, you're question. just going to get run over. Like Caesar, the empire is going to run you over. And you can be all nice and happy and sweet, but you're going to get run over. So they believe the lie. This is, this, is, this is Pilate looking at Jesus saying, don't you know I have the power of life or death over you? That's the empire says that to people every day. Don't you know we control your future? If we control your money, we control your future. And we say, yep, yeah, that's right. You do. Money does control my future. So 
what, so what you have to do when the Harvard guy said, what's a model of this? I said, well, Martin Luther King Jr. was a model. Gandhi was a model. Nelson Mandela was a model. Their model was Jesus. And the first thing they all said was, yeah, but they all died. Right. They all sacrificed their life. And I'm like, yeah. So now we're down to the real heart of it. Right. (laughs) So in the, so for a, for a business leader, who wants to bring transformation and not just be, we call them chaplains for the empire. Just want to be a Christian making as much money off the empire as you can. That's just a chaplain for the empire. We want to be priests in the kingdom. That's costly. It's costly. But Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom, the rest will come with it. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We think, nope, you got to play the rules, play by their rules. And so, so for the leader, what stops them is fear. So the number one thing, the number one exhortation in scripture is don't be afraid. That is the number one. Why is that the number one exhortation? Because fear shuts us down. Fear shuts down innovation. It shuts down creativity. It shuts down the true identity. So the very first thing you have to teach anyone is what do we do with our fear? That's what you have to teach. Every, every conflict in the world is based and sourced in fear and false identity. That's where it starts. Once you're afraid, you're going to self-protect and self-promote. Once you're afraid, you're not going to create. You won't create. Once a student is afraid, they don't receive information. So you have to institute practices in your company or in anything where number one is what do we do with negative emotion? What do we do with negative emotion? Fear and anger are the two main negative emotions, fear and anger. And anger is secondary to fear. I become afraid, I get mad. That's what it is. And it's happening every day in the workplace. And companies silo and companies um, have internal conflict because the people are afraid. They're afraid of all, we're afraid of all kinds of stuff. And nowhere do we deal with the fear. So we don't have wholeness in the workplace. We have fragmented people in the workplace. So imagine I'm a police officer. I'm at home. I get in a fight with my wife. Then I go to work. I put on a gun. I put on a badge and go out and I'm supposed to settle fights between people. But I just came from a fight that I don't know how to resolve. So I'm broken here. I'm conflicted here. And you're going to give me a gun and a badge and go say, go solve their problems out there. What are you going to do? Like, this is the most ridiculous idea possible. Now, if you sent a whole person into those broken places, that's a whole different story. But we're sending fragmented people to help fragmented people in a fragmented system. So the key is wholeness. The way to wholeness is take away fear. Take away fear, guilt, and shame. And now you're back at what Jesus came in the world to do. Hmm. He came in the world to, to destroy the work of the enemy and make us well. That's what he came to do. And we're not well. We're trying to act well, but we're not well. So what we do in our staff meetings, I've been in this, working in this group here for two years now. Every Tuesday, full staff meeting with our 16 leaders. Every Tuesday, we start with, what are you afraid of? It's called confession. (laughs) What are you afraid of? No, that's what confession is. It's Yeah, so good. And confession, if you don't start with truth-telling, the whole rest of the thing's just going to be the same old thing. I mean, you might get rich in it, but nothing's getting better. 
Nothing's getting better. And that, and I don't care in the separation of worldview as long as I'm getting better. I don't care about the rest because I'm not really connected to any of them. Right. I can just go live in my neighborhood and I don't have to worry about those bad people downtown because, because I'm separate from them. And I, that's the goal is to get into my own little neighborhood with my own little team and the, and the false belief that if those guys all perish, it's not going to affect me, which is the biggest lie. Right. Because in the in the universe that we're in, everything's connected, whether we like it or not. Right. I like that thing where they where they said the wolves in Yellowstone are a, are a nuisance. So they took them out. And when they took them out, the fish in the streams died because everything is connected. Wow. All things are held together. All things are connected. And they had to put the wolves back. <laughs> Because it threw the whole system out of whack. Well, if you have a population in your city that you don't care about and you're like, just get rid of them. They're a nuisance. The whole system is going to die. This is what the Bible keeps trying to teach us. And we don't believe it. <laughs> There's so much to unpack. Uh, I guess I'm curious. So when it comes, you went back to just your basic definition of identity. Uh, I think you said it's an identity received in community by God. And so I, I guess if I had to summarize the way I'm thinking, it's like, okay, one, you have to follow God. And if you follow God, he'll reveal to you who you really are. You and then that ask. gets worked. Yes, ask him. And then that gets affirmed and worked out in community, hopefully of other people who are following God. Uh, community is one of our core values at L3. And we always tell people, we want you to, to have a group in which you're fully known, fully loved, and fully challenged. Yeah. Is that is that if people have those two things, if they're following God and they have a group where those three things are present, will they start operating in the world of connectedness? And at that point, I guess I would just be curious your input on, you know, what does production look like in a connected world? Because is it no longer important? Hey, I don't have to produce. I don't have to prove anything. Or, yeah, I just want to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So, okay. So in a community, yeah. So uh, on a good team, on a really good team. So we brought a team together to work on the, the concept of human trafficking. So our question to God was, can we stop human trafficking? Our strategy in human trafficking is to clean up the mess that traffickers leave behind. That's our strategy. It's never going to end. It's never going to stop it. Can you stop it? That was our question to God. Why don't, I don't know why we're not asking these kinds of questions. Not how do we cope with it? How do we stop it? Humans can do anything. It's unbelievable what humans, we're co-creators with God at our highest level. That's what we are. So anyway, you have a community come together. Okay. It's what's absolutely critical in the community is that they each one in the community knows who they are, right? Okay, and so you have to go into this process. It, it watch Jesus does this with everyone he talks to. It's confession, repentance, transformation. This is the circle that we have to live in. So in a in a community that's not necessarily Christian or based in the Bible. Confession means truth tell, right? I talk about this in the book. Confession doesn't mean you're saying you're sorry for stuff. Jesus never asked anyone to apologize to him. Not one time does he ever ask anyone to say they're sorry. Never. That's our thing. What he does demand is that they tell the truth. Confess means to tell the truth. Your community has to be committed to truth telling about this, right? Truth telling leads to repentance. Truth telling leads to mind change which is repentance. If you don't tell the truth, no one's mind's ever going to change. You can meet in a group. You can pray in a group. You can do Bible study in the group. Nothing changes. Mm -hmm. I, I go into these groups like we've been meeting together for 25 years. And I'm like, why are you still here then? 
<laughs> if you've been if you've been in community this long, nothing has changed. Wow. Like if are you being if you've been being transformed for twenty five years and you're still here, like I don't know. That sounds maybe. But tell me, like, what's the transformation? Is your neighborhood dramatically transformed then? Because if you've been here that long, like, truth tell leads to mind change, repentance, and mind change leads to form change, transformation. Truth tell, mind change, form change, confession, repentance, transformation. This is the message of the kingdom. So when your group gets together, you want to focus on truth telling. So in our neighborhood, we started a group, people, I don't know them. We've been meeting for two years now. I, we invited them over for dinner, um, brought them together. They didn't really know each other. And what we practiced was truth telling. That's all we practiced. I didn't do a Bible study with them. I said, let's practice telling the truth together. And that made them nervous, like about what? And I said, just like, what are you afraid of? And we just, and I started, you know, I'm afraid I'm insecure about the, and then we just, and, and then that's what, how we talked about. That's what we talked about. And the next week, they couldn't wait to come get back into that because no one addresses this, right? So they started telling the truth. And then the more they would tell, then they would start to change their thinking about it. And then the more we would say, well, where does that fear really come from? What are you really afraid of? And eventually we got to, as a group, we don't believe that God is for us. That's, mm. Wow. Hmm. So if God's not for you, then it's all on you in life, right? Yep. And then you got to self-protect and self-promote, right? And then so yeah. And then what is how does that make you feel? Anxious is all get out. And I said, okay, so let's figure out if God's for us or not. And that's how they started to become mind changed. And then they started saying, you know what we should do? We should go down over here in our neighborhood and do this. Wow. That so yeah. that process. So I've been in groups. You know, that are, that are, I've, I've been in them, I've led them where I feel like, you know, almost like the enemy is leading the group hmm. because the group, some accountability groups just become accusation groups. So, 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 so like, for example, if, if, you know, if I say in my group, uh, my name's Jamie and I was addicted for, to porn for 25 years, I'm like, Jesus would never introduce you that way. He would wow. never say that about you <laughs> because that's the false you. He would mm. never bring that up. He would say, I'd like you to meet, I'd like you to meet my friend. She's a single mom. Well, he would never say that because single mom is saying, is accusing her of something, right? So, so I always ask people, how would Jesus introduce you? How would he, if he, if he brought you up here, he would say, Hey, you know who this is? You know who I knit together in their mother's womb when I made this person and he says who we are? It, you would be embarrassed at the level of how he talked about you. Wow. You see what I mean? But see, so we're leading groups that focus on what the enemy says about us and not about what God says about us because we don't know what God says about us. We never asked him. That's so good. Do you see? And so wow. when, when people yeah. come into that group, it's it, it like does something to their spirit. So when I'm meeting with employees and I say, tell me what you're what are you most anxious about in your life? Because when you're coming to work, you're distracted. <laughs> like you're distracted. Tell me what is distracting you. So, again, mm -hmm. we did this. We started doing this with school super and public school superintendents. They started bringing their principles in because of how much it affected them. 
They public school started bringing in their principals. Then they made the meetings open to all principals during the school day at the school board office because it was making their principals whole. Hmm. A whole principal is a better leader than a fragmented, freaked out principal who's only looking at measurables in the school, right? Getting his identity or her identity from the measurables. It's like your identity is your gift to your teachers. Figure out what your identity is. Give it to your teachers. Teachers, give your identity to your students. Teach them what identity is and their grades will go. So we did this in all the schools in our city here, except one. At the end of the year, all of their test scores went up except the school that didn't participate. So when we, so when people say, well, if I go into the connection worldview, I'm not going to be successful. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You will be successful at a level you wouldn't even know how to measure. You won't even know how to measure it because you're so you're just going to let this little scale tell you whether you're successful or not. Let the one who made you tell you show you what success is. What, what does experiencing pressure look like in a connected world? So, you know, you've worked with CIA high stakes. I mean, you still have to produce, right? That principle still has things that they're being measured by. Yeah. Is it you just no longer care whether or not you hit your goals? Like, I'm just curious, how do you view that? So I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like um, <clears throat> lots of them because we work in this all the time. So <laughs> the measurables the measurables are fine as long as you don't get your identity from them. That's the oh, key. Come on. Don't get your identity from the measurables. Bring your identity into the vocation. Don't get it from the vocation and you can't lose it in the vocation. So we say it like this. You bring your identity into the room. You keep your identity while you're in the room and you don't leave it in the room. You bring it in and you take it when you leave. A person who can do that is going to be your highest performer, right? Because they're, because they're bringing the true self. Yeah. And, and so, and because they don't get their identity from things, they do it with more freedom and grace and creativity, hmm. right? So, so here's my, this happened to me yesterday from my own. So like I wanted to write a screenplay. I don't know anything about writing a screenplay. I know nothing about it. I can read every book there is on screenplays. And here's what they tell you. You're not going to make it. You're 63. You're going to start. Like, do you know how hard this industry is? It's impossible. Blah, 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 blah. Now, if I believed all that, I wouldn't do anything because it would scare me. It would make me afraid. But I'm not afraid because I don't want to get my identity from it. I want to bring my identity to an idea and write it out as a script. So I do that. I do that. And then I just carry the script with me. Like I carry it around with me because now I'm looking for, wow, now, now that I have the script, I should start looking around for the opportunity that God wouldn't give me if I didn't have a script. Do you see that? Yeah. It's like put your toe in the Jordan and the Jordan will move. But standing back, praying it'll move, wrong way, wrong way to do it. So I carry the script with me. I'm in this scenario talking to this person and the person says to me, he goes, he says, well, that'd be an interesting story. Have you ever thought about reading a script? Well, why did I write a script? Because one time when I was praying, this idea came to my mind is like this invitation. The whole Bible is one giant invitation from God to humanity, one giant invitation. And all it is, is who took the invitation and what happened and what happens when you don't and why don't you? And the reason you won't take the invitation is because you don't know who you are. That's why. So Israel goes all the way to the promised land. They go all the way there, ready to go in. And they're like, we can't go in. Why? Because we're grasshoppers in our own eyes. 
and they won't go. <laughs> the Lord's like, let me know what day you want to go in. Let me know what day, one year, 10 years, 20 years, any day you say we want to go, we'll go. But if you're just going to do this, you're going to work that factory job for a hundred years because it's safe and secure. You're going to die there. But you could you could go over here. You could do this. So I, I show the script to this guy. These things work out. I get out of these bizarre circumstances. My And my main goal is to bless the person I'm talking to. I don't care about presenting the script. So this person says, I want you to meet this person. I go to this person. I start talking to this person. I said, tell me how you deal with fear in your life. I'm asking this person. And the person gets emotional. I don't, I, I'm under so much pressure. I don't know. And I walk him through this process. It turns out he's a major producer. Mm-hmm. I don't know who he is. You, you never know who people are. It doesn't matter who they are. Would I be different with him if I knew he was a major producer? He knew I didn't know that. And I spent three days with him, walking him wow. through his own personal woundedness. And then he says to me, you're a good storyteller. Have you ever written a script? Yeah. He goes, I want to see it. I said, I'm not, I don't want to show it to you. I don't want to show it to you because I don't, I don't want that to be our relationship. And he goes, do you know who I am? And I said, I do now, but it doesn't make any difference because that's not your identity. That's your vocation. He, he would walk me around the studio going, this is my new friend, Jamie. He's the first person that refuses to let me see us. <laughs> so finally I let him read it. And yesterday was the first time I sat with him and he just went through it line by line. And he said, get rid of this. Why would I not do any of that? Fear. Hmm. Fear of what? I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I, I've never written a script before. They're going to think it's stupid. Not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. So God can't invite not enough into anything. So it comes back to identity and hearing God, right? And then, so then production goes up. And Jesus says, he who abides in me will bear fruit and it will be fruit that remains. But it's fruit you'll never predict. You'll <laughs> never predict. So that's production is the result. It's not the goal. Well, unfortunately, Jamie, we're out of time. I wish I wish we can go on. I could go on for like another five hours. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. But if, if you're listening to this and want to connect with Jamie, we'll include links to all the ways that you connect with him. He has a book uh, and multiple ways that you can connect. But I can't encourage you enough to dive in. Uh, just anything else you want to leave leaders with today, Jamie? Hearing God and knowing who he made you to be. That's it. That's the secret. Uh, Well, thank you so much for investing in me and everyone who will listen to this. You add massive value to the world. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Jamie. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find ways to connect with him and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash 374. And leader, as always, I want to challenge you that if you want a 10x or growth this year, then you need to either launch or join an L3 Leadership Mastermind Group. Mastermind groups are simply groups of 6 to 12 leaders that meet together on a consistent basis for at least one year in order to help each other grow, hold each other accountable, and to do life together. For me personally, Mastermind groups have been the greatest source of growth in my life over the last 8 years. So if you're interested in learning more about launching or joining a group, go to l3leadership.org forward slash masterminds or email me at dougsmith at l3leadership.org. And as always, I like to end every episode with a quote. And today I will quote Henry Cloud who said this, He said, forgiveness is the way you free yourself from betrayal. Otherwise, you'll be tied to betrayal and trapped in it for the rest of your life. Holding on to anger and bitterness allows cancer to grow in your heart, mind, and soul. We need to learn how to forgive leaders. 
Well, hey, know that my wife, Laura, and I love you. We believe in you, and we say it every episode, but don't quit. Keep leading. The world desperately needs your leadership. We'll talk to you next episode.